Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to How Magicians Think. Such a pleasure to have you with us. This episode is called The Greatest Magician You've Never Heard Of. How Magicians Think is my love letter to magic and the best magicians in the world. It's a podcast about what happens when you spend every waking second of your life pushing the boundaries of what's possible. It's about taking the ordinary and doing the extraordinary. I want to take you behind the curtain so that you can see the inner beauty of magic and appreciate the world's most secretive profession in a whole new way. I'm Joshua Jay, and this is How Magicians Think. Welcome to the show. We begin with a moment that would have been so heavy, so life-changing for everybody involved that it's hard for me to even imagine it as I read these words. It was the moment that Henry Box Brown, who would become a great and accomplished magician, was getting out of a box. But he wasn't getting out of a box for some magic trick. On this day in 1849, he was being helped out of a box that he had been sealed in for the better part of three days as he was mailed to freedom. That's right, he mailed himself as a slave to freedom. William Still said this about that day, quote, All was quiet. The proceedings commenced. The witnesses will never forget that moment. Saw and hatchet quickly had the lid off, and the marvelous resurrection of Brown ensued. Rising up in his box, he reached out his hand, saying, How do you do, gentlemen? The little assemblage hardly knew what to do or think at that moment. He was about as wet as if he had come up out of the Delaware. Henry Box Brown is the most enigmatic figure in magic history. We don't know much about his early life in slavery. We know more about his post-bondage life when he went around the world speaking about his amazing story and peppering his speeches with magic. Henry Box Brown remains perhaps the most prominent Black magician in history. And to talk about Henry Box Brown, I have the perfect person. Rory Rennick, the Henry Box Brown biographer, who has just released a book on his idol, Henry Box Brown. Let's go Rory now. He was born enslaved, as was his, his family, his mother and his siblings, in Louisa County, Virginia, right outside of Richmond. And his mother told him one day that, just like the wind would take leaves and tear them from the branches and scatter them abroad, Families could be done the same way. And that did happen when he was like about 15 years old. His master on his deathbed divided his family amongst his four sons. And Henry went to, to Richmond as a result of that. 
At the age of 15, Henry's master died. He was inherited by a family member who promptly sent Henry to work at a tobacco factory in Richmond, Virginia. From a psychological standpoint, being separated from your family is very, very traumatic. Let's take a pause for a second so I can tell you about Rory Renner. Rory has been a professional magician for about 20 years now before having a 15-year career in the mental health field. For over a decade, Rory has made his living with a very cool presentation in which he becomes Henry Box Brown and performs as a Brown-like character. Rory is considered one of the foremost authorities on black magicians and Henry Box Brown in particular. His book debut, Henry Box Brown's Legacy and My Life with Him, has been one of the most anticipated books in magic in 2021. The, the slave dynamics were different at different parts of the country at different times. So he worked for what we would call slave wages because he had to spend a lot of his money on housing and, and, and food. About six years into it, he found a, a woman uh, that caught his fancy named Nancy. She had a separate master. Well, the two masters had agreed that, to allow them to marry. And when they had done so, Henry had to rent a house in advance, a year in advance. Despite being an enslaved person, Henry didn't live on a plantation. Instead, he was given a stipend to pay for lodging and just enough food to survive. This is actually pretty interesting. It's where the term slave wages comes from, because slaves who didn't get room and board were only given enough money to eat, sleep, and work. So his free friend, the friend who helped him get free, uh, named James Caesar Anthony Smith, he paid Henry's house in advance. And so those are some crazy, crazy dynamics in and of itself. They had three children, and upon his wife being uh, ready to deliver a fourth child, Nancy, which was his wife, her master sold her while Henry was at work. He comes home only to find that his wife, his children, and some of his furniture had all been sold and was being held at a slaveholder's jail. Now, Henry goes back to his master to see if he can get a, a loan or if his master would purchase his family's freedom. He was rebuffed and turned away. In his autobiography, he says, as if he wasn't even human. Nancy and her children were sold to a minister in North Carolina. The despair over losing his wife and children would spark an idea. Well, he, he said the idea came to him while he was praying because he was distraught and he had stopped going to church. He had stopped communication with, with a number of people. He would just go to work and come home. But then one day while he said, by praying about freedom, the idea came to him. He heard a voice in one of the accounts. And then and in another account, he says the words flashed across his mind of getting into a box and mailing himself to freedom. Well, his free black friend named James Caesar Anthony Smith, he knew of a white man named Samuel Smith who was a bootmaker in Richmond. The two of them got together and they, they, they went over some plans. None of them uh, suited Henry's. And then Henry said, well, let's make a box. And so they employed the, the services of a, of a mulatto carpenter. The white guy, Samuel Smith, he sends word and was in communication with the abolitionists in Philadelphia, a man named Miller McKim. He became the conduit for this transaction. To finish his plan of escape, he had a friend of his get some, some oil of vitriol, or like acid, because he worked in a, a tobacco factory. He poured the acid on his finger, it went down to the bone. 
And so he was able to get off work because of his injured hand. They met at Samuel Smith's warehouse. And then he was placed inside of the box, realizing that once the box is nailed shut, he, he's at the mercy of the forces around him. He only had four holes because he packed in that box a gimlet, which was like a small hand drill that he could make for small holes that he says to breathe in, a biscuit, a hat to, to fan himself, to keep himself cool. And the box was lined with canvas to keep out the cold March air. And so the white Samuel Smith shipped that wooden box with Henry inside it on March 23rd, 1849. And for the following 27 hours, Henry could only pray he'd live to be free. And then when he was transported, the box was turned upside down a couple of times, maybe for the space of about an hour and a half. So he couldn't maneuver his body because he was cramped inside of a three foot by two foot box. And the box was thrown off the train one time and he heard his neck snap and he was um, knocked out for a while. That in itself speaks to the character of those who wanted to be free. Though some people have said it was a magic trick, it was far from a magic trick. This was a real life and death. After he's placed inside the box, he's put onto a, a wagon. The wagon goes to a train. The box had nailed on it uh, a message, you know, handle with care, this side up, which was ignored. And he could feel his head getting hot, his eyes almost bulged out. He thought at any moment that his temples in his, in his forehead were like, he said, pencil leads or the size of his fingers. And he and imagined that at any moment that they were going to burst and he would just be covered in blood. He said he was delivered from the angel of death when he started praying because the box was thrown off the train. The porter says, no, we have to bring it back because it says it was um, express. And so it had to be there. The box was placed back on the train. And then from there, it went on to a boat. And then again, the, the, the box was turned upside down and two men wanted to have a place to sit. And it was only when that happened that the box was turned right side up again. It was on the boat, back onto a train, back onto a wagon, into the depot, where he had to wait three more hours, not knowing exactly where he was, for uh, Miller McKim and the three other abolitionists to open the, the box. And the abolitionist Miller McKim thought he was going to open it up and find a dead man. But when he opened up the box, Henry emerged and sang a song of thanksgiving. It was the same song that he had imagined before he went into the box. So this is a great motivational and inspirational principle. He saw himself being free. He saw himself, the box being open and him singing the song. The, the news of his escape started to spread like wildfire because no one had escaped in that manner. And so he started to be invited to all the anti-slavery conventions. And he shared the stage with William Wells, the Crafts, and Frederick Douglass, from whom he learned a lot uh, about the cause. Frederick Douglass kind of criticized Henry Box Brown because the manner in which he escaped was so public that it ruined it for any other ones coming behind him. His notoriety, coupled with the Fugitive Slave Act, meant Henry was no longer safe in America. So he set sail for England in 1850. The Fugitive Slave Act, which entitled Slave 
holders, slavers, to go into even free states and to retrieve their property, which Henry was considered a property. There is a level of controversy that does happen because Henry sold his narrative for 25 cents to help him along the way, which was you know, entrepreneurship, you know, from a, a slave man then working into a factory to a person who's now selling his story. He remarried, had more kids. Leaving his wife and children behind was a controversial decision that did not play well in the English press. So Henry wrote a public letter explaining his actions. Henry writes his public letter in the, in the English newspaper to explain his position that his wife was pregnant with her master's child. So that could have been one of the, the reasons. The manumission or the price that he was going to pay that it was offered to him, to Henry, allegedly, by the holder of his wife and children, only made his children available in this offer for $1,500. It didn't include Nancy or the fourth child. According to U.S. law at the time, neither marriage nor paternity involving a slave would exist. Slaves were, essentially, livestock. Nancy's master not only owned her child, but also may have fathered the baby. Henry had no rights as a husband or a father, and stepping foot on American soil meant he could be legally forced back into slavery. If she had her child by this slave master, maybe there was less incentive to risk going back into slavery by spending time there. When he went to England, he took along his friend James Caesar Anthony Smith, the black man. James writes to the abolitionists in, in America and raises this question because now Henry is free and he's smoking cigars and drinking liqueurs and you know so the strict abolitionists aren't having that facing criticism for his new lifestyle henry left his abolitionist work for a life in magic his box trick became part of his act a couple of accounts in some earlier books had attributed henry learning magic from a slave named tricky sam who was this this mythical person who went to plantations and taught tricks to the kids, which there's no evidence of that happening in Henry's life. Henry may have learned magic from, if anyone, from John Henry Anderson, the great wizard of the North, who, who was on the same circuit that Henry was. And of course, Henry's story was such a, a, a marvel over in England that it wouldn't surprise me that he may have conversed with Henry, maybe even taught him a few things, because Let's face it, for a magician to teach uh, a celebrity some magic, and you are the one who helped do that, there's a little feather in your cap for that. So he reinvented himself. That is one of the big lessons. One of the, the second big lesson why magicians should know Henry's story is that through all of his obstacles, none of us in this modern time have faced any of those types of obstacles. And if he can become successful in that, era and, and under those circumstances, well, that leaves very little excuse for us. When he first got into magic, he started out in mesmerism, a forerunner of hypnosis, stage hypnosis. So imagine a black man hypnotizing a white British audience. A free man in England and with magic, Henry found success. Actually, the magic was kind of secondary. 
but for him to to rub shoulders with some of you know magic in that whole arena was was amazing to me in england to get your start in magic in another country he became quite wealthy in fact the, the 1871 census over there in england listed uh, henry his wife his three children at that point and a lady named susan smith her job was domestic servant Henry eventually came back to America, touring with his now famous box. His last performance was on February 26, 1889. There was a, a playbill from 1875 when he returned to the United States after being in England for 25 years. It shared some of his, his show. For example, he did some of the stock trade, like a sword through cards, a watch ending up in a nest of boxes. But then there were some other obscure types of tricks that maybe he named or maybe he modified or even invented. I find this so interesting. Rory could see the parallels between his life and Henry's. His research became, as he puts it, an obsession. Why? Well, I'll let Rory tell us. Henry came to magic late in his life, as did I. He was able to transform himself. One time I was trying to get that feeling and my acting teacher told me to, in terms of method acting, maybe you, you might want to try something like that. And I thought for a publicity stunt that I would go inside of a box while my wife was at work, stay in there for 27 hours like he did as a publicity stunt. So I would say, well, maybe we'll do that in a library and the lights would be, you know, on so that everyone could still see that, you know, that I'm still in the box. I lasted about 14 minutes. That was it. My daughter, she's, she's in her 30s now. She said, Daddy, why is it that you're so interested in Henry's family? What about yours? And that led me down another path, uh, a painful path. My father didn't know who his real father was. And his, his mother kept it from him. And so... Researching that made it even more personal. Some people have just talked about him escaping from Richmond to Philadelphia, and that's the end of his story for, for most people. His transition from being a, a fugitive to an abolitionist to a speaker to an entertainer, a magic entertainer, with, with his foot in the psychic entertainment with mesmerism, animal magnetism, even delved into some phrenology, into classical magic, who had some marketing strategies that it was second to none that I even employed. I said, yes, absolutely. We have to bring that to the, to the forefront. And it was during the same arc of, of my magic career. So why don't we know Henry's story beyond escaping slavery, his life, and magic? Why don't we know about other notable black magicians? Rory has an answer. I didn't even know of very many black magicians <laughs> at all when I started. But to find out someone from the past, for the most part, a lot of black magicians haven't had their day in the sun because their story gets buried or they don't find it as significant. I, I challenge that idea because the unique circumstances under which most black people, especially in America, have found themselves in makes the story unique because of the unique obstacles that they face. 
and have faced over over time. If you can imagine if as a race of people you were thought of less than or that your skills might not be up to par or your presentation because if you was to really shine in your craft outside of being uh, playing the, the role of comic relief, that would be kind of threatening to some people. That was the case with a group of magicians called Boomskis who were the sidekicks to white magicians. And they were incredible in their own rights because they had to be. If you're going to be the uh, magician's assistant, you're going to know quite a few secrets. And if you're going to be the out, you had to know uh, a certain amount of stage management, audience management to help the magician out. My friends, it's so critical that we tell this story and stories like it because the history of magic is fascinating, but unfortunately, very one-sided. If I was to portray another magician on stage, one would be a guy named Benjamin Ruckus. He was known to many as Black Hermit. Black Hermit was probably one of the most fascinating magicians of the 1900s, early 1900s. His marketing was, was amazing. I got a book of his published in 1930, I think it's 1939. <laughs> it's called his 14th edition. <laughs> it's his first book. Black magicians have largely been left out of the narrative of magic, and I want to do my part to change that. This episode could be a start. In the next episode of How Magicians Think, we're going to cover one of my favorite topics. The episode is called Tragic Magic, and one of my areas of expertise is studying all the magicians, spectators, and assistants who have died in the act of magic. You're going to hear stories you can't believe. We'll cover magic's most deadly trick, the bullet catch. And we'll also explore the real story of how Houdini died. It's going to be a fascinating episode of stories. We'll see you next episode of How Magicians Think. If you've enjoyed this episode, make sure you follow it on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to fill your friends' lives with magic by clicking that share button inside the app. If you'd like to find more information about me or my career or my book, How Magicians Think, or my tour, you can find all of that at joshuaj.com, and I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Joshua J, and this is How Magicians Think. How Magicians Think is a production of Audio Up Media and Vanishing Inc., Executive produced by Joshua J., Jared Gustat, Phil Alberstadt, and Jimmy Jelinek. Written by Joshua J., audio up in-house production by Jordana Glick-Fransheim and Nate Glassman-Hughes. Edited by Kerry Caulfield-Eric. Sound design and mix by Kerry Caulfield-Eric. For the full list of production credits, please visit audioup.com. You can find more podcasts from AudioUp on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot 
for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.